Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time captured is a podcast where I ask my guests to reveal the five things that they would choose to put into a time capsule. That's why we called it My Time Capsule. Anyway, they can choose four things that they cherish and would like to keep safe, but they also choose one thing they'd like to bury in the ground and forget forever. My guest in this episode is a man who is, without doubt, a one-off, although his style influenced many of those that were to follow. John Dowie is a poet, musician, composer, stand-up comedian, actor, writer, playwright and director. Although it could also be argued that he's not really any of those things. His innovative comic style led to him being seen by many comedians that followed him, such as Alexis Sale, Tony Allen, Mark Steele and Jeremy Hardy, as a precursor to the alternative comedy wave, with comedy impresario Malcolm Hardy noting that John Dowie's work predated even the founding of the Comedy Store. In particular, John was credited with establishing observational humour as part of the new movement. In 1997, he toured with and influenced another alternative pioneer, Victoria Wood. As well as writing songs and sketches with her, he's credited with helping her to develop her future trademark patter between songs. John was among the inaugural acts on Tony Wilson's Factory Records label. In 1978, he contributed three comedic songs to the first Factory music release, a Factory sample, along with Joy Division and Cabaret Voltaire. In 1987, John issued a live album, recorded at the Zap Club in Brighton. But by 1991, he had all but retired from stand-up comedy and performed his last stand-up show, Why I Stopped Being a Stand-Up Comedian, that year. As a director, he directed shows by, among others, Neil Innes, Arthur Smith, Barry Cryer and Ronnie Golden, and the late Pete McCarthy. His children's show, Dogman, directed by Victor Spinetti, was described by the Daily Mail's Jack Tinker as the best show he'd seen in Edinburgh that year. John went on to write and perform Jesus, My Boy, which was also performed in London's West End by Tom Conti. John retired from theatrical work, his second retirement, in 2005. John collaborated with Phil Jupiter and Neil Innes on a musical comedy CD for children and an archive CD titled An Ark of Hives was issued in 2012 with sleeve notes by Stuart Lee and Dave Cohen. And there's more. He's written a number of books, one of which is his 2017 autobiographical work The Freewheeling John Dowie, a book about his exploits cycling around Europe. And that's just a few of the things John has done. I was invited to lunch with John at his place in St Neards, but before we ate, 
We talked about, amongst many other things, the five things from his life he'd like to put in a time capsule. So here is the freewheeling John Dowie. What's that look like to you? That looks like a lovely cup of tea. Sure. It does indeed. I was living in fucking awful flat in Finsbury Park in the uh, late 70s, I guess. Yeah. And uh, they'd just moved all the prostitutes away from King's Cross and got all <laughs> travelled over to Finsbury Park. Yeah. And I couldn't get a phone for love of money. You know, it takes three months to get a telephone put in. <laughs> and it's pissing down in rain. I can't get a fucking phone. I've got no money. I mean, they shit off the flat. I'm trudging up Finsbury Park and some brass says, Fancy a good time, dear? <laughs> no, no. I really do fancy a good time, but not, not that sort. No. No. Oh, yeah, a hand job at a bus shelter in Finsbury Park in the rain. <laughs> put me down for that. It's the pinnacle. There's a lovely story Alan Bennett told, thought of her, you know, I thought of her, told it to him. When she was growing up in, I think it was somewhere in Leeds, somewhere like that. Yeah. And the local, it lived in a little village. And the local prostitute used to, sat, used to satisfy her customers at the alleyway at the bottom of Thora Herd's garden. <laughs> when she was about 12 or 13 or something. And she went out one day to put some rubbish in the bin. And she heard a customer say, Nay, Nelly lass, put some heart into it. <laughs> <laughs> what an existence. Shane McGowan was a male prostitute, apparently, in uh, was he? his early days. There's a documentary with him and Johnny, Johnny Depp yeah. talking about it. He used to go out and make a few quid, Piccadilly Circus. It was only hand jobs. I thought it was quite bold of him just to... Mind you, he was so drunk, I would imagine, that he wouldn't but, be in control of what he was saying. Yeah? Yeah. So, um, I'm ready. So, um... It's lovely to be here near Bedford. St Neots, I've never been to St Neots in my life. Very few people have. I hadn't been here before. The only claim to fame is the town that was named after the world's smallest monk. <laughs> it's a great place to live. <laughs> and it was mentioned by Colin Wilson in one of his books, I think The Outsider, where, he's, where he was walking, hitching back from Cambridge, which is about 50 miles away, I think. And St Neots was where he got his first lift from... <laughs> From a small monk. Do we know what this monk did to make him a saint? He had a well, a holy well. Ah, well, that qualifies you, I think. That's all I know. Uh, but in the market square, there's tiny little statues of him all around the big war memorial. Oh. But it's quite handy for London, 40 minutes on the train. It's all it is. Not necessarily every time. No. As you might well know. So you're going to choose five things from your life to go into a time capsule. Hmm. So what have you come up with? So I've got three buildings and a gig. And the first building I thought of was 7 Belgrave Square, Belgrave Road, Borthalee, Birmingham 12, mm. which isn't there anymore. And it was um, the house that I spent my years 6 to 11 in. So those are really important years, aren't they? They are, yeah. yeah and, I, and at the time, school was just unbelievably horrible. But the house that I lived in was really unbelievably nice. Although on paper you wouldn't think so, because it was one of those Birmingham slums that were cleared in the uh, late 50s, in terraced houses. There's about 12 houses to a terrace, mm. and uh, one outside toilet for every three houses. Wow. Uh, one grate in your kitchen to light the house, heat the house with, and one cold water tap. So you'd think on paper that that, that would be, you know, a very unpleasant way to live, but uh, not at all. Not when you're six. Well, I think my parents suffered a bit, particularly my mother, who came from a very well-to-do background, whereas my father was from the slums of Belfast. So this was like a cold, running water. That's a palace. That's <laughs> yeah, trudging three miles to the lock or whatever. But uh, it so was... your mum came from money? Not massive wealth, but up brackets. Mm. And, you know, I think my parents, I mean, God knows how they got through it, but... My mother has made massive sacrifices to live with this Irish bloke. And she couldn't have had an easy ride with her parents because they were very well-to-do and very upper-crust and uh, stuffy. And my dad was, you know, was a painter-decorator off the boat of Ireland and he hadn't got two farthings to rub together. <laughs> and so she, 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 she made a massive life change when she... Did they reject dad. her then for choosing it? No, they didn't reject her, but they... I think they made their disapproval quite well known. Oh, right. Didn't help financially. They may have done, I don't know. Right. Uh, but I'm not aware of them doing that. They may have done. But it was a council house and 
but everybody who lived in the terrace had the same financial background for some reason. Everybody was poor and everybody had millions of kids. And my theory is it's the only way they could keep warm <laughs> by having sex. <laughs> or, or sitting on the toilet seat which three families shared because that's never going to get cold, is it? No. But I remember my grandmother came to visit us once. We were in the terrace and I was playing out because all the, all the houses in the terrace had little flat gardens in front of them which were all dirt. Yeah. So all, used, all the kids used to go out and play out, the, in, out there. And my grandmother was just leaving, trying to get through the... It was like somebody had a dickens, you know, trying to get through these crowd of urchins. I went, turn on, Grandma! And she looked at me with cold horror and she said... For a moment, John, I thought you were one of the children who live round here. <laughs> but, but I am. I am and I do. But it doesn't really matter. I didn't really, what I thought was, I mean, I've been thinking about it because of this. But it didn't really matter what the condition of the house was. It's how you felt when you got inside it that counted. Mm. And to have a house that you look forward to going into because you know everything's going to be all right in there is worth a lot more than... The house my grandparents lived in. Yeah, yeah, we quite. stayed in very briefly. We weren't very welcome there at all. How many of you were in the house? Four, three and a half kids. I can't remember if my sister was born there or not. She might have just been born there. But three of us for sure and two, two adults mm. and a dog. Because, you know, if you, have, if you can't afford to feed the kids, get a dog in. <laughs> if nothing else, you know, <laughs> if, if, you, if you can't get a steak that week, you've got a dog sitting in the corner with nothing to do. <laughs> so... I, and my dad used to have this tiny, tiny little A30 van. Do you know an A30 yeah. van? Yeah. Little green thing. Yeah, my mum's first car was a little green A30. Ah. With an indicator on the dashboard. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And there's two seats in the front, a little tiny seat in the back, and then a little space after that. And every summer, because somehow or other, my mum and dad managed to borrow a caravan off somebody in Teamworth, a two-birth caravan. Yeah. And you get into this tiny car, which is no bigger than Noddy's car. My dad would get four kids, the luggage and the dog. <laughs> and no eating. And drive us all the way to, um, to Teamworth from Birmingham and then cram us all into a two-birth caravan. And my dad knew nothing about politics and architecture, but he knew how to pack a car. <laughs> That's a skill. I think it may well be a particularly working-class skill, that ability to manoeuvre something with a trader on the back. Well... Well, I remember, because my parents lived in what would be described as a row of, of working-class houses with a small garden, but that backed on to a tarmac playing field where we used to play. Yes, we would have gone there for our holidays. <laughs> we had a backyard with wash houses in them where they weren't functioning anymore. But in Birmingham, near the Hippodrome Theatre, they've preserved some of the old terraced houses. Mm. There was about six of them. So I went and had a look at some of them in Birmingham. And it was almost, it was quite good. But they were so clean. They weren't clean in my day, mate. <laughs> no. Where's your authentic brummy dirt? <laughs> but, yeah, I remember that house so fondly. It was a good place to be in. And it was a good part of... I mean, they've knocked it all, all down the area that I used to live in. It's called Gone now. But uh, walking back from school and calling in on the library on the way back and then getting back home, sitting in front of a real fire with a book. Mm. Well, in my case, all the books that I had, my brother's library tickets and my sister's library tickets, and I come back with about 12 books, read them in a day, take them back. And, you know, first thing I can remember, still one of the things I remember about my dad, the first thing he did in the day when he got up in the morning before he went to work was light the fire. Light the fire. Yeah. I remember sitting by the fire while my dad... Did he, he get the newspaper? With the newspaper on the front to get the drawer. Yeah. 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 I never understood as a child why that didn't catch a light, uh, although if you left it there too long, it would do. Well, that's... Mm. Try and distract your dad while he's doing it. Yeah. Have you seen that big spot on the wall over there? So <laughs> he sets his hands on fire. <laughs> yeah. And it's odd to think that that, of course, that was the heating for the house. Yeah. It didn't go further than the kitchen, but... No. I mean, there was a front room, a kitchen, and then a staircase leading off the kitchen, and there was three storeys. And by the time we got to the attic, he might as well have climbed Everest. <laughs> Unbelievable for anybody now, I would imagine, to think of a life like that. Yeah, the idea that every time you want to go to the loo, you go outside. The thing about my parents' house in Bermondsey, they felt incredibly privileged to get it because it had an inside bathroom. A bathroom, yes. A bathroom, not just a toilet, a bathroom. Although we still constantly had a bath in front of the fire. It's the best it, way to have a bath, isn't it? Best way to have a bath because Ken, it was warm. The bathroom was cold or you had to use an electric heater. Ken Dodd uh, said every Friday night the, the order of the bath. <laughs> First the kids, then granddad, then the whippet. 
<laughs> I'm actually, if I got that wrong, I think it's first the kid, then the whip it, then granddad. That makes more sense. <laughs> the thing is, it's not that long ago, is it? It's extraordinary how things have changed in that yes. time. When my dad bought the most expensive wallpaper he could find to make the front room look nice, mm. as soon as he put it up, he got a letter from the council saying, we're going to knock your house down. <laughs> and uh, then we moved to a quite a, a very different kind of a house. Where was that in Birmingham then? Where did you There's a place to? called King's Heath, adjacent to another area called Hall Green. But I mean, we had a massive, great big back garden, which my mother was in showbiz heaven because she just absolutely adored gardening. Mm. And across the road is a massive, great big park and everything was like, I said, and I wrote about it somewhere and I said, and the whole of the world I suddenly was moved into was full of a colour we'd never seen before. <laughs> it's called green, said my mother. Oh, <laughs> so we really had grey. Well, so we had cigarette smoke, grey dogs, grey men, grey faces. Yeah. Grey pubs. I remember that grey world very well. Yeah. I remember smog. Where we lived in London, there was a lot of smog. When we went to school in the morning, we, we always wore a scarf through the winter. Keep them through your mouth. Over your mouth. And it would go yellow by the time you got to school. And then you'd have to go on the top deck of the bus where everybody was smoking. <laughs> I always find it a real cliche when people said, oh, in the 50s, everything was in black and white. I don't know where the white comes from, or the black. It was all grey. Everything was grey. <laughs> of course, also, strangely at that time, late 50s, early 60s, and you think, oh, we're moving into the 60s, so that's when everything goes a bit full of colour. But that's only Soho. The rest of the world stayed Didn't the same. Didn't see much of that in Birmingham. No. Did see a couple of hippie girls wearing those big Afghan coats on a bus once, and I thought... Well, they're, they're hippies, I suppose. I wonder if I can have free love with them. <laughs> I doubt it. And how do you ask? So school was happy, though? You liked being... No, I hated it. Oh. Horrible. Well, the thing is, all, where I lived, all my mates went to a school nearby called Tyndall Street. Mm. And my mother decided that, that school up, up in Mosley Village, which is still there, it was a, apparently a, was known to be a really good school. Oh, for some mad reason. It's a primary school, for God's sake. All you yeah. do is learn to fold and crayon, you know. <laughs> How can it be good? But so she fought like mad for some reason to get us into this school, Park Hill, or yeah. as we called it, Pig's Hill. <laughs> I used to think something happened to me on the way from home to school. I thought I changed in some mysterious way because I was all right at home with school friends. But when I got to school, that all changed. I didn't have any many friends at all. And the ones that I did have were the other outcasts, you know, the, yeah. the, the leper group. And I thought something had happened to me on the way. I thought it's like a reverse superpower. Instead of turning into some massive superhero, you become some kit that nobody likes. The unfriendable. Yes, indeed. That's a good name for the unfriendable. <laughs> and I think it's, I don't know, I have no idea, but it, it could just be me. But I think most of the kids in Park Hill, Pigs Hill, were the sons of doctors and lawyers and journalists and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you're the son of a painter and decorator, that, I don't know, we don't hang around those kind of people. But you were self-educating, though, just by reading, weren't you? Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to do. There's nothing that happened to me in primary school that was any value at all, as far as I can remember. Not one single thing. And the greatest thing that happened in my primary school was that it was tradition at the end of the end of your year, when you finished that school, yeah. you trooped on stage and sang a song about how great the school was for the <laughs> poor fuckers who were coming along after you. And uh, my dad's firm had holidays a week early, so I didn't have to go on the stage and sing the stupid song. <laughs> I can still remember the elation that my dad said, oh, you, we're going on holiday next week. Don't have to go to school and sing the stupid song. <sighs> but I'll tell you a story that happened in that school. Yeah. Was that before we didn't have a television to begin with. Nobody in our terraces had televisions. I mean, it like, cost an absolute fortune. And I was sitting at the school one day at lunchtime. The headmaster walked through the um, lunchroom. Everyone was having their school lunch. <clears throat> Followed by Roger Moore, who at the time, unbeknownst to me, started the series Ivanhoe. And all the sons of doctors and lawyers and accountants in the school all had televisions. They knew who Roger Moore was. <laughs> and instinctively burst into the Ivanhoe theme tune. And I'm sitting there, the only one, <laughs> the only boy in the building who didn't know what was going on. And I just thought, this is, must be some weird school ritual to welcome a new teacher. <laughs> That's the only thing that made any sense. That's the only thing that made any sense. Roger Moore smiles and waves and walks out the door. So well, the following week, he got a TV, watching the TV. Ivan O comes on. I turned to my mother and said, that man's a teacher at my school, Mum. <laughs> and to her eternal discredit, she believed me. Oh, bless her. 
and ages and ages and ages waiting for Ivano to go into the playground on his big horse. Wow. It bugged me for the still does. What was he doing there? I can't imagine. Did he go there once? Was he an ex pupil? I don't think he was a Birmingham lad. I think he was more your part of the world. I don't know. Was I think that... he must have been a friend of the headmaster. I don't know about his history. I'll have to look it up. Well, I, I met mean... a taxi driver or actually a chauffeur once. And I was having a chat and said, what, what, what's coming up? He said, oh, next week I'm going to pick up Roger Moore and drop him. Do us a favour. Here's my name and address. Could you ask him? <laughs> Nothing happened. Roger Moore came to see a play I was in once. Oh, did he? Yeah. He came to see it with Sean Connery. So it had two Bonds. Oh! And Brian Forbes and Lynette Newman. And a very, Just very... Just because I only had Roger Moore, you have to come along with four that's, people. I'm don't. always going to top it. Yes. That's, that's my job on this podcast. Yeah, that's what I do. I lure people into telling me stories and then I tell them a better one. Do they ever tell you my Brian, <laughs> <laughs> Brian Forbes and Lynette Newman story? <laughs> What I remember about it is that Roger Moore kept saying to me, um, my daughter, sir, my daughter wants to be an actress. And I said, oh, great, great. And he said, so uh, if you know anyone? And I thought, what do you mean if I know anyone? Yes. <laughs> you know the story about Bruce Forsyth, Jimmy Tarbuck and Sean Connery are in a taxi cab leaving a golf course. Yeah. And Bruce Forsyth is the one closer to the taxi driver. And he's chatting to him for the window. And he says to uh, Bruce Forsyth, the taxi driver, I know you're facing somewhere. <laughs> and Bruce Forsyth said, well, you're made to. Um, I'm Bruce Forsyth. So I said, get out of it. You're not Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> I am Bruce Forsyth. I said, yeah, I'm not Bruce But if you're Bruce Forsyth, I'm James Bond. Sean Connery says, no, no, I'm James Bond. <laughs> Is that true? Do you I think? hope so. And so do I. Like all these things. Well, I had somebody confirm it once. But Jimmy Tab had heard him tell the story on some programmes, so I would imagine it's true. <laughs> yeah. The anecdote I liked was he was talking about Donald Wolfe on tour with his own company and his wife was in the company. <laughs> yeah. And they finished the play and they're taking the curtain call and Wolf, Donald Wolfe is making a speech and he said to the audience, and tomorrow, uh, next week, we will be giving the Scottish play. I will be taking the um, title role and my good wife will be playing the part of my wife in the play. And the guy from the balcony shouts out, your wife doesn't look an old whore. <laughs> Nevertheless... <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. All right, so we're going to take a happy memory of living in your terraced house. Yes. With an outside loo and one cold tap. One cold tap. Five years of a glorious existence. If you can only remember it with affection, what else could it be? Yeah. I don't think he had the happiest childhood in the world, my dad, because he grew up in real poverty and he wasn't well treated by his stepmother, I don't think. And I think when he met my mother, I think his ambition in life was to make four children and make them all happy. He didn't, I don't think he could have done that without my mother. Well, he certainly couldn't have done it on his own. I mean, <laughs> anyway, that was his role in life as far as he saw it. Yeah. And he stuck with that. And he once said, said he wrote a little biography about himself when he retired. And he said, four kids, he's got four kids. He said, I haven't had a bit of trouble from any of them, <laughs> which in this day and age is remarkable. And I just thought, well, if you give them that kind of a background, you're not going to get trouble. No. It's very rarely that you're going to get trouble. No, why would they? Because if you treat them well, they'll respond well. I would have thought. That's why my kids are such bad news. <laughs> with their own individual beating belts. I had their own individual beating belts with their names embossed on the belt, <laughs> big brass buttons. Well, you've left in red welts on their body. Yeah, yeah hang, and I hung the, hung the beating belts on the back of their bedroom doors, you know, <laughs> just, just as, as a gentle reminder. But spare the rod. Mm. <laughs> Were you beaten as a child? Did your dad ever hit you? No. No. Teachers did it all the time. They had nothing else to do. Well, I remember once in, in my secondary school, here we go, here we go, digging up a pit of wound. In my secondary school, some, we were all shepherded into this big auditorium and the music teacher put on an opera for us all to listen to on a record player. <sighs> so I'm taking the piss out of the opera with my mates and this other teacher who had nothing to do with music takes me outside and says, how dare you, how dare you make fun of this beautiful music? And give me the hardest smack across the face I've ever had in my life. Putting you off classical music forever, I would have thought. Yeah. yeah. Extraordinary that they had the power to do that. They all did it. I mean, it was, I, mean I, I was came constantly. But I was asking for it, you know. It's not as though I was, I was innocently sitting not my mirror, reading Heidi. And yeah. someone takes me outside with a big stick. <laughs> Eat something by an English man. But a slap across the face. That's, that's outrageous, isn't it? It is outrageous. Yeah. 
the small punishments, in a way, often, or what they regarded as small punishments, were the worst. Yeah. That clip round the ear thing, which happened all the time and, and always happened when you weren't ready for it. Blackboard rubber. Yeah, blackboard Black rubber. Is a big I mean, what an extraordinary thing to go. It's a great big piece of wood. Mm. One side is soft, but the other side is a solid piece of wood, and they would fling Throws, it at you. Throws at your head. Concerned that you weren't learning anything. <laughs> oh my word! Do you want to move on to number two? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit similar, really. It's um, it's called Birmingham Arts Lab, and it was in a place called Tower Street in Birmingham, sort of industrial centre of Birmingham, and it was formed by five guys who originally were part of something called the Midlands Art Centre, which nowadays is known as Mac. Because people in Birmingham who are interested in the arts can't say long, difficult words like Midlands and art and centre. But Mac, they can say that quite easily. And they thought the Midlands Arts Centre, these five guys thought the Midlands Arts Centre wasn't really doing anything to do with art. No. It was just maybe a step up from amateur drama. So they decided to form the Birmingham Arts Lab, which was just happening at the time in 1968, 69. Organised a few benefit gigs, got a building and started doing art in it. And I would go, I went along and got involved only in my own capacity because I was decided I wanted to do one man shows then. Mm. So I needed somewhere to find to do them and stuff. How old were you when you did that? 18 or 19. Right. And it wasn't highfalutin art. I mean, but there was one guy who did sort of like atonal music stuff, which I knew nothing about. Another guy who did modern dance. There were two other guys who showed obscure movies that could never, films you couldn't see in Birmingham. You know, Fellini's Eight and a Half and things like that. Mm. They were showing all these kind of films. Another guy doing, 19-year-old boy, Stuart Rogers, a good old friend of mine, hiring theatre groups to try and centre up the country. Wow. country. And he said later on, who would dream, you know, a 19-year-old boy who just left school was given this power, <laughs> power, you know, yeah. to this ability to book theatre groups, put on shows, attract audiences, do posters, sell tickets, mm. that kind of stuff like that. And I met loads of people coming through the arts lab. Mike Bradwell from Hold Truck, they came down quite regularly. Two or three theatre groups came along. They'd bump into me somewhere, probably the pub next door. And the next thing I know, I'd be on tour with them in their van, <laughs> you know, doing a little 10 minute spot in one of their cabaret shows. And it was just a really, it didn't feel like it at the time because it felt quite a normal thing to be happening. Mm. But I would kill for my sons to have something like that in their lives. Mm. You know, a place you can go where you're free to do what you want. You meet people who are contemporaries who are doing something similar in their own fashion. And you go down to the pub afterwards and form a darts team. <laughs> David Edgar wrote and directed a play, which I was in there, two-handed play, which he called Bull Boys, about tennis players, which he, he brings out every Wimbledon. <laughs> and that was, you know, things like that were happening. And, you know, and you just go, and you go to the coffee bar and sit around and, you know, there's no licence. Probably one of the reasons why it succeeded was that he didn't have a licence for alcohol. And there's a public store run by a mad woman called Merrill who had some new carpets put in and then banned crisps. <laughs> <laughs> Those sort of places are such a treasure, though, aren't they? I thought, yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, you got fringe theatres and stuff later on like that, but just like a, a bunch of people coming together. Mm -hmm. And all with a similar aim, but with different things they wanted to achieve within that aim. Yeah. Getting the money together, getting some Arts Council funding, you know, doing benefit gigs with Roy Harper, showed the Bob Dunham film Don't Look Back. Wow. Uh, Birmingham Town Hall, which nobody, everybody had read about, but nobody had ever seen, you know. The terrible thing is it's not much money. Oh, it was, it was very little never, money. The councils would hardly notice they'd done it. Yeah. And yet it was the first thing that was taken away. I mean, they always had trouble with the arts, arts lab, Birmingham City Council, because they thought it was a hotbed of sex and drugs, you know, which we all wanted. Yes. That's what we wanted, but it wasn't what it was. No. I didn't have any sex at Birmingham Arts Lab. The only person who had sex in Birmingham Arts Lab was a gay man who's dead now. Uh. And he, so he, he didn't even live to tell the tale. And there was a bit of drugs, to be fair, actually. Yeah, but it came along. Yeah, there was drugs there, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I first got stoned one of England's finest cartoonists, I won't name him because he might not like me to do so, but he got me stoned at Birmingham Arts Lab and I was printing up a little, little magazine on a golf ball typewriter when he used to lay the power, I can't remember how it's done now. Mm. He gave me a joint and he made me roll it myself, which I think is what got me stoned. When you roll it yourself, it's like cooking your own food, you know, <laughs> different, it works better somehow. <laughs> and I had to type the word Montgomery 
I managed to type bum gum 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 delete 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 gum 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 delete 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 Montgomery done it. Oh, thank God! All you got to do is focus and concentrate. The next word I had to type was God, Gid. I went to see the cartoonist and said, I think I've got stone. What shall I do? He said, Have another joint. Oh my God. For young people in that situation, the, the opportunity to do that, basically there's somewhere to go where you get out of the house. But also it's somewhere to go, unlike school, where you can go and learn how to be yourself. Yeah. No, I think it's great, those anything like that. The effect that a place like that has on you through the rest of your life, that's the Absolutely. point about it. I used to do comedy gigs at this little pub theatre in North Cork called the Finborough, mm. Finborough Arms. And the guy who used to run the place there, Mike McCormack, he used to do sort of semi-professional, semi-amateur theatre productions. So I, against my will, said I'd go along and watch one of these things. <laughs> I'm on the wrong side of the lights in the audience. I don't yeah. want to be on this side of the light. <laughs> so I went along to see this, and it was like mostly amateurs, the sprinkling of professionals or wannabe professionals doing this play. And, the, and we went into this auditorium, sat down, watched the first three. And the first thing that happened was the first two rows of seats were taken away, and these people had to stand up. And we had to move to another part of the building. And then we had to move to another part of the building, this big old Victorian building. And there were these two actors doing a scene, and I was like two inches away from them. And I could not believe that people, and these are not professional actors, professional actors wouldn't do it. No. These two people doing this scene, two inches away from my face, and it was just one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. I was in the dressing room afterwards talking to Mike McCormack, sort of enthusing about his production. And one of the actors came in and said, Oh, Mike, I'm off now. Can't stay for a drink, but I'm going to go home. But I'll come in tomorrow early and we'll perhaps we'll have a pint after the show then. And I said, yeah, that's great. Mike, see you tomorrow. Goes up and back. And I said, that guy, that's amazing what he just said. I said, well, in what way is it amazing? He said, he has the world's worst stammer. Wow. Can't get a word out normally. And every time he does a play, afterwards, you know, he's long to live here. Amazing. Know? Yeah. And that's what I think, <laughs> what is the purpose of art? It's how people who can't talk, talk, isn't it? Mm. I was really thinking today, someone saying how great music is. You know, how music, can, just, just the effect of being in a group of people playing music. Mm. Mm. There's nothing, nothing but beneficial qualities. And of course, that's one of the first things people want to stamp out. Put a stop to music. Can't have people playing music. I remember seeing that with my son, with music. The first time I saw it, we were on holiday and we went into a karaoke bar, which would have been undoubtedly my fault. <laughs> My wife would have resisted, but I would have insisted. What's so, your karaoke song, dare I ask? Uh, I like to sing I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Yeah, Tony right. Bennett. Well, just showing off, really. <laughs> and My daughter has a really lovely voice, mm. and we've always known that. And she sang Perfect. I remember it now. She sang Perfect. Do you remember that song? It's got to yeah. be perfect. Lovely song. She sang it beautifully. Everybody loved it. Big round of applause. And then the man, this Frenchman, because we were in Biritz, and this French person, and next we have uh, Jean. Jean. And my son stood up. And we went, what? <laughs> and he'd never done anything. Mm. He was about 14 at the time, maybe 15. We didn't really even know he could sing. Mm. And he sang Sitting on a Dock of a Bay. Wow. Really brilliantly. Mm. You never know, and you need something. You need a spark mm. with kids to let these things out. So the Birmingham Arts Lab. Yeah, it really worked for me. I mean, I, I think it just gave, it gave me and other people there, I think, so much of a foundation to be what they wanted to become, like we said earlier. Yeah. And it was just a lovely old building. <laughs> it really was a nice old building. And... Uh, I've got a drawing of it done by the cartoonist that cut me stone, which is a nice thing to have. Good place, full of good people. Lovely. Let's have a cup of tea. Yeah, a cup of tea? Break. You want tea? Another tea? Yeah, yeah. that'd be brilliant. I'm making a bit stronger this time. That's it. Lovely, thanks. Uh, fantastic. OK, while John and I enjoy another cup of tea, here are, unless you're an Acast Plus member, some adverts. John and I will return shortly. Cheers. Anyone got any biscuits? 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back. Right, tea drunk, second wind found, and a conversation continuing. You join us as John and I are reminiscing about a mutual friend, the great improvisational genius Jim Sweeney, and his love of Winnie the Pooh. As you do. Have fun. And we got to bits with Eeyore. There's one bit where Eeyore, Rabbit comes up to Eeyore to, slap, to get, try and get him to do something. All Eeyore says is, what? <laughs> I thought he was going to die, he was laughing so hard. My favourite line in literature ever is when Pooh recites a poem, which he just thought of. When he gets to the end, as always happens, Rabbit said, is that it? <laughs> and then Pooh yeah. says, well, yeah, it's something that just sort of came to me, Rabbit. And then the author writes, and Rabbit who never let things come to him, but always went and fetched them. <laughs> and I was dreading of getting to the end of the second book, because that's when it all breaks up. Mm. I've never been able to get through it without crying anyway. I, was, I just couldn't understand how I was going to get through it with Jim. And every time we got to start the last story ever, something would happen, somebody would come to the room, blah, blah. So it kept being put aside. And then I went, last time, well, it wasn't the last time I wanted to see him, but I wanted to see him. So I would read the last. And it was great, because we did the last one on its own. Right. It kind of exists on its own, in a way. Yeah, yeah. That was very nice. But the thing about it is, could he cope with the uh, state his body's in unless he's one of the world's greatest improvisers? He's found a way to sort of live that life now. Indeed. Not long after he moved into the hospice, or whatever it's called, I care. Mm. I was talking to a radio producer, he probably knows Steve something. And I said, we should get together, I said, and get people sitting around Jim's bed and he can just chat, yeah. do a radio thing. And, he, and the guy said, great idea, we'll call it In Bed with Jim Sweetney. Great. So we knocked up a little pose like they have to do. And I was going to see Jim. And as soon as I walked through the door, I thought, he's not going to do it. And I just sort of like vaguely mentioned it to him, but he hadn't got a proposal. And just as I walked, I thought, he's not going to do it. And Jim said, well, the thing is, I'm here now. And what I'm going to be focusing on is what happens in this building. Because there's a lot of people here who can't speak, but they can speak, you know, but they can't articulate their needs and all their grievances. Yeah. I can. She says, I'm just going to be doing that. Years ago, we did a, a conference in York, me and Jim, and it was for General Accident Insurance Company. And the managing director of General Accident took us out to dinner. And eventually, Jim, in his typically mischievous way, said... Must be a bit boring, though, being the general manager of General Accident. It's all very general, isn't it? <laughs> he went, what do you do? And the man said, well, I'd, I'd generally go around the country having meetings with people in different offices and, and telling them, well done, carry on. And Jim said, yeah, generally rather dull then. <laughs> he said, it is, actually, to be honest, yeah. yeah. And Jim said, I'll tell you what, if you want to make it more interesting... You just replace the word yes with the word ears and see if anybody picks you up on it. And the bloke said, what do you mean? He said, well, instead of saying yes, you just go ears. Yes. He said, do it, you know, fairly indistinctly to begin with, but then become clearer and clearer. And as the meeting goes on, eventually you need to be saying to people very, very clearly, ears. <laughs> yeah. And see if anybody says to you, sorry, are you saying ears? 
but they won't because you're the boss. Mm. Mm. And the bloke went, no, nah, that, that's, no, that won't work. That's and, and, you know, a year later we did the same conference. This man ran up to Jim and hugged him. <laughs> Brilliant. He said, you've changed my life. Because <laughs> that whole condition started off a little sparky thing in his eye. Yeah. When he was finding it difficult to read things, he went on to do an audition. The guy said, well, here's the script. It's not a problem for you to read it, is it? And Jim said, well, actually it is, yeah, because I've got sight problems, but mm. I'll go away and learn it. Yeah. You'll do what? I'll learn it. Learn it? <laughs> yeah, I'll read the words and memorise them and then I'll say them because I'll have learned it. Oh, all right. <laughs> could, could not believe it because that, that's what he was going to do, but he did it and the guy went, oh, yeah, well, well. But didn't, didn't hire him. That's a fluke. Lovely. Should we move on to number three? Yeah, I'm going to do one gig. Because mm. when I stopped performing comedy and stuff, I kind of decided I wanted to do things that I enjoyed doing. Yeah. And um, at the time, I had uh, a bit of a crush on this writer, Philip K. Dick. So I decided I was going to do some kind of a play about Philip K. Dick. And it became a one-man play, because that's what I do. Which is quite good, because that meant I had to read everything he ever wrote. Because <laughs> there might be something, you don't want to miss anything, you know. So I had all the fun of tracking down every... And some of the books were very hard to get hold of. I know it came to market one day. There's a book that's very hard to get hold of anyway. But this was a hardback edition. And I opened the flyleaf and it, was, and it said uh, £2.50. I thought, no, that's, that's 25 quid at least, isn't it? But no, there was a big full stop two, full stop 50. £2.50. <laughs> so I said, the book, I buy this. £2.50, mate. It's like everything went into slow motion. So eventually I put this text together, which is quite an interesting Philip K. Dickian idea in a way, because he wrote every single word in it. I didn't add anything. But he didn't write them in that, Eric Walkham, he didn't write them in that particular order. <laughs> yeah. So what I ended up with is sort of like a collaboration between Philip K. Dick and me in a way. And as a consequence, I met some really good people, including a guy called Paul Williams, who at the time was in charge of the Philip K. Dick estate. Right. Because he was a big friend of Philip K. Dick. And one of the things that Paul Williams also done was he invented modern rock journalism. Because he, he began a magazine in America called Crawdaddy, which eventually led to the Rolling Stone magazine. Right. And Paul Williams was the first person to write long, intelligent articles about rock music mm. rather than puff pieces about pop music. And he was a really lovely guy. So anyway, so we've got this show together. But everybody who does a one-man show always wants to jump off the tightrope with a parachute. And you can't, you can't have a parachute. You've got to walk on the tightrope without a parachute. Yeah. Everybody does it. Can I just try this? I directed uh, Tony Harzer in a show he wrote, one-man play he wrote, about a guy who's in the black room. He's just in this black room and he doesn't know what, what he's there and he doesn't know how he's going to get out. And I said, that's great, Tony. How do I light it? <laughs> how do I put a light? So I said, what we'll do is we'll have one spotlight over your head and you do the whole play with your eyes shut and you'll open them twice at key moments, you know, and the effect will be massive. It'd be a car chase, you know. <laughs> and sure enough, I knew this was going to happen. Sure enough, you know, three days before we open, could I just try doing it with my eyes open? Mm. But anyway, so so I did this. For, I got booked in to do this Philip K. Dick play in a church. Don't know how or why, but I was doing it in a church, and the audience was mostly comprised of people slightly older than I am now, which is I'm 72. So these guys were 75, 80, and a lot of these plays about death. And I guess this particular passage, and this guy in the front row lets out this huge wail of grief. And I'm thinking now, if that line's killing you, the next line is going to destroy you. How do I time it? Because <laughs> when you time a laugh, mm. that line made a laugh. Well, in that case, this line. So I'll read this bit. <laughs> and when I point at you, you do the big wail of grief. OK. And we'll see how it times out. OK. <clears throat> I remember one time when I had this dog I loved. The dog got sick. And we took him to the vets. They said he had eaten rat poison and the next 24 hours would determine if he'd survive. I went home and waited. Then, around 8.30, I went into the bathroom 
and I saw Hank at the bottom left part of the room. He was slowly, in a very measured, dignified fashion, climbing invisible stairs. And then, at the top right margin of the bathroom, he disappeared, still climbing. He didn't look back once. I knew he had died. And then the phone rang, and the vet told me that Hank was dead. And of course, I felt terrible, overwhelming grief. And as I did so, I lost myself and followed along with him up the fucking stairs. But finally, the grief goes away and you phase back into this world without him. And you can accept what the hell choice is there. You cry, you continue to cry because you don't ever completely come back from where you went with him. A fragment broken off your pulsing, pumping heart is still there. A nick out of it. A cut that never heals. And if, when it happens to you, over and over again in life, too much of your heart does finally go away, then you can't feel grief anymore. And then you yourself are ready to die. You will walk up the inclining ladder... And someone else will remain behind, grieving for you. I'm here all week, folks. Try the locks. Wow. Oh, my word. I think that's true. Yeah, good. I think it's true. That's very strange. I think I said that to my grandson the other day, that I think that's why the Queen had died. And I think you see people do that. And I think she decided she was ready to die. Mm-hmm. Happened to a friend of mine who was in Hampstead Hospital. He was quite poorly. He got some kind of cancer or something. Mm. And he was very thin and very frail. And I went to see him in the hospital, trying to cheer him up by telling him he might get the bed that Peter Cook died in. <laughs> never, know, never know your luck. No. You never know your luck. And uh, <laughs> that I was talking to him. And I've been with him, to, I've been kind of looking after him in a non-caring way, just making sure he got to appointments and stuff. And as I was chatting to him, a nurse came over and said, I'm just going to take some of your blood, uh, David. And it's like, you know, they did that to him every single time he went to the hospital. Mm. And I could just tell by the expression on his face, I thought, do you know what, I've had enough of this. I've given all the blood I want to give. Nothing's going to get better. I've had enough of this. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, yeah. And I went back the next day and he was dead. Mm-hmm. They said, oh, could you come this way? And I said, no, no, stop, is he dead? Yes. I said, well, give us his things and I'll go, you know. And I look at me, they probably thought I was his son. Callous bastard. Callous, yeah. No heart. I'm walking away with his ratty old bag with his pyjamas in and his old walking stick. I'm walking back to his flat I thought, what am I carrying these for? <laughs> Just put those in the nearest skip and carry on, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think people know when to go. The only person I care about the opinion of is not there. Yeah. Uh, I saw this great documentary once about some Buddhist guy whose speciality in life was making mosaics. And when he was working on the mosaic, he'd always finish it when the dawn came up. And then he was 110 or something. And he, was, and he kind of had enough. So he died when the dawn came up. And then they showed his friends and relations carrying him to his funeral pyre. And they were holding his body with fingers. It was so light, uh. you know. Whereas the poor old queen is in a lead-lined coffin. <laughs> and you've got to get some strong soldiers for that, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, down that road we all go. Unless you accept it in life. then it's going to come as a bit of a shock, isn't it? Yeah. Unless you sort of go, OK, well, you know. But I used to do the thing about, you know, whether the doctors, he said, uh, so got some bad news, you've got ten left. And I went, ten what, years? Nine, eight. Nine, eight, seven, six. And it's a lovely joke. It's a smashing joke, yeah. Yeah. And jokes like that sort of, they come into the ether, don't they? And you yeah. pick them up and you take them. And I never you... understand where jokes come from. Every now and then somebody will tell you a joke and the next thing you know, everybody's telling you the joke. Yeah. I think somebody did an experiment with that where they, to see how quickly a joke would go round yeah. the world. Yeah. Somebody told a joke and then waited for it to come back. And it took about four days to travel the entire world. Jim Sweeney's mum used to write her name on pan notes and see if they ever came back. And oh, wow. What a great idea. Isn't it? Yeah. But you want to do it now? Oh, I'm going to do that. use his money. Right, try and etch it into a pan <laughs> And the bass player, every year, would go into those photo booths and have his photograph taken just of his face and put him into a flick book so he could watch himself age. 
See, I wouldn't do that. And now there's almost certainly an app that will do it for you anyway. Well, that's probably certainly true, isn't it? It's like all those things you put enormous amount of effort into thinking, this will be a fantastic collection. Then somebody comes along with a piece of technology that makes it as easy as that. Well, why didn't somebody tell the BBC so they can stop doing those interminable weather forecasts? (laughs) I've got a weather forecast app. I'll ring the BBC and tell them, there's no point anymore, you can stop now. Hmm. So, Philip K. Dick. He died of war. I mean, it wasn't dirt poor. But he wasn't doing particularly well, but he was about to do well because his first movie based on one of his books was coming out. Right. And he hand-typed his own contract and insisted that at the end of the film or the beginning of the film, it must say, based on a book by Philip K. Dick and misspelt his own name. <laughs> so on the film now, he's got, you can see Philip's got the two L's. Deliberately, so he knew... The no, li- no, no, accidentally. He accidentally did he it? accidentally misspelt his own name. Oh, no. Just before he got, in, got some money. Yeah. So many of his books have been used for films. Loads, loads. loads. The worst one is a great, a great book he wrote called uh, A Scanner Darkly. And for some reason, they've got all these film actors, Keanu Reeves was one of them, and they treated them so they look like cartoons. It's like, well, don't you hire actors so you can watch them out? <laughs> Why do you want to turn them into cartoons? Well, it's a great book for Scanner Darkly. And there's a great bit in it where these um, guys get this frantic phone call from their the woman out there. Come over, quick, quick, I'm in a terrible, terrible state, come over, come over. So they go around to her, what is it, what's wrong? And there's some large insect in her bath. And they say, oh, no. And she said, kill it, kill it, kill it. They <laughs> said, no, 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 this is a really great insect. It does great stuff in terms of the environment. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. And the girl said at this point, the girl said, well, if I'd known it was harmless, I'd have killed it myself. <laughs> See, those sort of really dark books that also have great humour in them. Mm. I was thinking about Dickens the other day and just how funny Charles Dickens is, fantastically funny, and yet really sad and really poignant. It's amazing writing. I've never read it, it's still still a bone of contention. I can't read it anywhere near what I used to be able to read, and I still Mm. haven't read any Dickens. I think it must sharpen the mind wonderfully if you're going to serialise your work. Yeah, got to get some good gags in, got to have a good finish to the end of the episode. There's a great story about some pulp fiction writers who bang out these, like, lucky magazines and... And one of the guys was leaving the series and his, his mate's going to take over the series the following week. This guy ends his series with uh, the heroes in a pit and surrounding him at the top of the pit, all around the pit, are fierce Afghan warriors, all with Afghan guys and boomerangs <laughs> and spears and whatever, the, uh, to be continued. <laughs> and next, next week his mate comes in, has a look at the script and goes, <clears throat> chapter three, with one mighty bound he was free. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, brilliant. All right, let's put... Well, do you want to put him in his works? No. No. Just that uh, gig. Just that gig. Just, I just thought it was such a great conundrum for a former comedian to think, how do you time a misery? <laughs> I could it, just remember me sitting there frozen with thinking, well, what, what am I going to do? <laughs> Spike Milligan, what are we going to do now? Yeah. I mean, I could have literally killed him. But, you know, I mean, doesn't mind your big laughs. What about your big wails of grief? He's one of the world's greatest timers of grief. Yes. And if people leave the theatre thoroughly disillusioned and depressed, I've done my job. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fantastic. That's three things we put in. So we've got one more thing that you want to keep in the time capsule. Well, it's another building. It's the Parkview Pub in Brighton. It's just outside Brighton. I used to live in Preston Park. Lovely. Which is one step away from Brighton. And um, a friend of mine was a neighbour, and uh, we'd been to see one house, my former partner and I, and didn't like it. And as we were leaving the house we didn't like, this guy said, our house is for sale, come and look at our house. And there's not a sign on it or anything. And it was fabulous. Wow. Fabulous house. And she said, because she buys houses like it's a game of Monopoly. <laughs> I said, well, let's not dash into this. Let's say, well, we'll go to the, the pub around the corner, We'll go there, have a think about it, and let you know in about half an hour. Because yeah. it's fine. Hippie. So we wander around to this pub at the front of the corner, and it says, opening hours, 11 to 11. Already this house is looking good to me. <laughs> yes, I like that house. And we go into the bar, and there's two mates sitting at the bar, Robin Driscoll and Tony Harzer from Cliffhanger. Yeah. What are you doing here? You've just bought a house. <laughs> <laughs> get them in, get them in. And then Robin and Tony, mostly Robin, introduced me to all the lo- local guys that used to go there. They were all men, actually. And they get there at the end of their working day, which would be up 4, 4.30, mm. and stay there till about 7. 
just drinking and chatting. And it was one of the best times I've ever had. Because I never had anything like that before. I had arty people I used to go and drink with, but I never had, like, local guys sitting in the pub chatting. And they're all named after their occupations, you know. The guy who sold pharmaceutical drugs was Chris the Pill. <laughs> the guy who mended fridges was Dave the Fridge. The guy who worked in the hospital was Nick the Nurse, John the Twat. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was just like a real open... As long as you got around it and didn't bore people, it was all right. You know? Yeah. And, it's a, and it was coincided with a really nice time in my life when, I was, when the kids were small and just growing up and writing stuff I liked. And the building is still there, but nothing else. Uh, all the ambience has been ripped out of it. And all the guys have either died or moved away. This is like 1990. But yeah, I used to really like that. They're lovely, those sort of pubs, aren't they? It's sawdust. I, I, I mean, I've, I've found a pub more recently like that. Is that in Tunbridge Wells? It is in Tunbridge Wells. Yeah, the George, you know the George, up on the hill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I tend to go there between six and about half past seven. So that fits into that period, doesn't it? And they that all start early... about, right, just about half an hour before they go, they all start planning their recipes. Yes. I think I should be doing chicken. And they've all got, like, aspirations to be mad cooks. It's like, I'm going back, baked potatoes and baked beans, mate, come on. <laughs> they all walk out and buy a takeaway, really. Oh, that's all yeah. I would do, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this thing about working men that, you know, haven't, haven't got any sensitive sides. There was a guy came into the pub one afternoon... And half a dozen of us, you know, sitting around the bar, standing and sitting. And this guy came in and his daughter was pregnant. And he said, guys, I've got to tell you, she's lost a baby. And every guy reached out with him and touched him. Uh-huh. He's like in a forest of hands, all sort of just giving him that kind of like support. Mm. I thought it was just a beautiful thing to say. Mm. Yeah. So how long were you in the house? It's about four or four years or so, I think. Uh-huh. I thought, well, the kids were four and six, that's nearly two quid in old money. But it was a really, really nice time. And Brighton was, it's still nice Brighton, but it's so much bigger than it used to be. Yeah. And there was a guy in Brighton, who I won't name, whose reputation was he was the meanest man on the planet. <laughs> Just the meanest guy ever. Everybody had a story about how mean he was. One day, some people were chatting in an office with the, of his management or something. One of the accountants said, look, the other day he said... I was going through his expenses, his receipts and stuff, and one of the things he put in his was a bus ticket. <laughs> 35p bus ticket. And I just had to turn the bus ticket over and there was something scribbled on the back of the bus ticket. I thought, wait a minute, that looks familiar. This is my bus ticket. <laughs> and this mean man had fished the bus ticket out of a bin and put it in that 35p ahead. Wow. And he did some, I'm not going to name it, but he did some quite interesting work. But nobody ever talks about that. And nobody ever says, I love that player or I love that, this, that and the other. The mean story is that's what people talked about. <laughs> and what would have saved him would be if somebody would have given him a kidney. But he wouldn't lend somebody two bobs, so no one's going to give him a kidney. <laughs> oh, no. I've mentioned this idea, it's a story to my dad. And he, he didn't enthuse much about my work to my face. He said, oh, you should write that, he said. Everybody knows somebody like that, mm. you know. He walked to the pub shoulder to shoulder. He walked through the pub door, all of a sudden he's three yards behind. <laughs> the only thing oh. you don't notice, I buy a pint, he buys a pint, I buys a pint. Time to go, he says. <laughs> Leaves the pub a pint ahead. But next time, you start again. What I used to do was walk in the pub and say, just nip it to the toilet. <laughs> All right, so that's four things we've well, that it nicely brings me up to my th- thing I don't want to keep, isn't it? Because mm. I've got this thing, I'm trying to write a book, and it's going to be the last thing I do, I hope. So I need a conclusion of some kind about what, what have I learned or what is meaningful for me. Yes. And one of the things that isn't meaningful for me is this thing that people think money, wealth and power are, are important, you know, as if somehow they've got a way of taking it with them. <laughs> Or else they're not going to go. Yeah. But it's always, and it's much more prevalent now, I think. It seems to be more prevalent now to me. And one of the things about it is um, there are people in the world now who want to have money so much that they're prepared to get rid of the planet rather than lose their money. You know, Mm. I want the money so much, I don't care if I've got nowhere to spend it. (laughs) I've got to have as much money as I possibly get. 
And it's like, there's only a certain amount of money you can spend anyway. Once you've bought 10 super yachts, where are you going to keep the liquidity level? It just goes on and on forever. The rank stupidity of it. And I, one of the things I'm very pleased about myself is that I have no ability to make money whatsoever. I've never, <laughs> ever, ever been able to make money. But I, I can get by. I've got enough to poison my body with alcohol and use a bit of tobacco. It isn't anymore. I can get by, but I, I'm not going to be... What should I do with these big bags of money? I've got no way of spending them. <laughs> but what I think is actually really important, it's going to sound really fair and hippy-trippy, is being kind. And I was on a bus once in Cambridge, waiting for a bus in Cambridge, and there's an old lady that got on before me with one of those bags full of everything she owns. You know? Yeah. And I don't know why she didn't have a bus pass, and I suspect it's because she hadn't been on a bus for a long time. So she said to her, I want to go to blah, 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 please. And she's got a pound coin in her hand, and the driver says, that'll be £1.80. Shock horror. I've got some more money somewhere in the bag. Uh, she didn't want to hold up the queue, so she said, I'll be back in a minute. She gets off the bus and starts rooting. I can't stand here. Or I want to get to where I'm going. <laughs> so I said to the driver, look, I'll pay her fare and just tell her she can get on the bus and everything will be fine. Sat down. The woman gets on the bus looking at the and then eventually and then somebody points to me. I'm sitting there feeling really embarrassed, thinking, oh, dear, I just want to get where I'm going. You know? Yeah. Then she, as I'm leaving the bus, she says, thank you so much for paying for that, and gives me two quid. And the was one pound, actually gives me two quid. So I'm 20p ahead. <laughs> and then I get off the bus, and this woman following me touch on the show and says, oh, I just wanted to say, I thought that was really lovely what you did in that bus. I thought, oh, hang on a second. I've just been kind. <laughs> I had no intention of being kind, <laughs> but apparently I was being kind. I thought, do you know what? I th- this is better than drugs. <laughs> I feel so good. I spent years avoiding it. I've never known for my kindness. <laughs> Where else can I go and be kind? <laughs> Does anybody need any kindness anywhere? I'm here to be kind. <laughs> I thought I'd give the two quid to somebody who, you know, who might need it. You know, that, that's an act of cocksier. Do two kind things in one day. <laughs> so what I want to put in my never again this. It's all the unkind things I've ever done. All the unkind things, all the bad. I've had a few drinks and think I'm being funny. All that stuff. I could put all that in. But the problem I have with doing that is that means I have no guilt. <laughs> so I'm a bit torn on that one. But I think it would be good. <laughs> it would be good to be more kind. That's what I think, yeah. It's surprising, isn't it? As you say, you're always 20p up, I think. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the great thrill when you put on a coat you haven't worn for ages and find fiver in the, t- fiver in the top pocket? <laughs> Free money! I've always thought that if you're a little bit more kind, then other people will surely learn from that lesson because it, they'll like it and they'll sort of go, well, I'll be a bit more kind and then everybody's a bit more kind and eventually we progress. Absolutely. I always used to think in the glory days of Margaret Thatcher when various spectacle comedians were going on television saying how awful she was. If they said something nice about her, she might get a warm glow of appreciation and open the hospital. <laughs> you know. But then again, you look at the current lot, you think they wouldn't open a hospital. Uh, yeah. but, you know, people might have to bear the consequences of their actions, I suspect. And, you know, if you've spent your life being unkind and cruel and self-interested, you might regret that decision later on. I would certainly hope so. I mean, that would yeah, I would hope so. Me. But I think, unfortunately, we all bear the consequences. Yeah, but we're only here for a very, very, very brief... Tiny, tiny amount of time. But I, I've got grandchildren. I want their future to be as happy as possible. You know, how wonderful that we can talk about a house with one cold tap and an outside loo for three houses and go, wow, what a ridiculous world that is. Of course, there are people in the world who would still see that as the height of luxury. Yeah. And so there's something that we all need to do. Yeah. When, as you say, there are people who pursue wealth to the point where... They can be a bit pissed off. I noticed the other day that oh, the spaceship that they built to go up into space exploded. Oh. And that wasn't supposed to happen. I could have built another one. Oh, not no. a single person, right? And you go, get a life. One of the things I'm saving up for this book is that what is the purpose of the powerful? The purpose of the powerful is to protect the weak. The problem with that is only the weak believe it. <laughs> Very good. John, thank you very much. And I'm very much looking forward to lunch. Yes, well, we can have it now. Brilliant. Why don't we get all the people listening to your podcast to come along and have it with us? See you in about five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule, 
with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, John Dowie. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. If you fancy subscribing, then please feel free. And if you want to rate this podcast, hi, hopefully, or even write a short review to encourage others to listen, we will be delighted. My time capsule and I are both on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So if you want to contact us at all about anything, then choose one or all of those and follow us. We're very friendly, I promise. The theme music by Pass the Peas Music is available to download or stream on Spotify. And this cast-off production for Acast was produced by John Fenton-Stevens. Right, we'll be back soon with another guest, but I'm afraid it won't be the man I interviewed the other day. Honestly, he's the manager of a helium factory, so it should have been fascinating, as I'm sure you agree. But I'm not having people speak to me in that tone of voice. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.